at 5.30, and we've just been going through the neighborhoods, giving out Bibles, and uh, asking people if we can pray with them, and, and uh, having the opportunity a couple of times to actually share Christ with people. It's been really good, and people have been really uh, hungry, <laughs> I guess. I don't know how else to describe it. It just, I've just, there's, there's been a hunger out there, and we we should be willing to be courageous and go out there and, and satisfy the, the, the hunger with the only satisfaction that people can have, which is Jesus. Uh, someone just not far from here, uh, a couple blocks from here, their, their mom, this woman shared with us that her mom had just passed, and, uh, and she said, man, I'm so thankful for you guys. You all stop by my house at least once a year, it seems like, and it really means a lot to me. <laughs> I thought, wow, I don't always think of us, you know, as ministering in those ways. I encouraged her to come stop by us once a week, and we'll love her even more. But uh, anyway, uh, be willing to do that. Pray about coming out with us at 5.30 on Thursday night. I usually go out for like an hour, and uh, we won't send you alone. We go out in twos, like Jesus said. So just come. It'll be great. And then uh, outside on the, where all the bulletins are, are these packets of these little uh, brochures, and it just has on the back um, what the Easter kind of schedule looks like, you know, Good Friday service, and then the Easter egg hunt for the kids, and the chili cook-off after that, and then the services on, uh, on Easter Sunday. We want you to take these and give them out to your, your neighbors uh, and your coworkers and um, anyone uh, in your life, and just, just hand them out without apology. You know, people know they need to be in church on Easter anyway. Everyone knows that. So come to church with me, or come to the chili cook-off, or come to this stuff. So uh, this is an opportunity for us to reach out meaningfully to people we know and love. So please do that. Uh, then lastly, I uh, just want to thank you guys for, for helping out with Upward. Um, there was just hundreds of people through the whole season. Um, yesterday, there was a lot of people here uh, just loving people and, and, and sharing with people and talking to people and coaching these kids. And pretty incredible to see you guys uh, just loving our city in that way. And I, I, it just means a lot to me. I'm really thankful for you guys doing that. It gives me more encouragement than you could possibly imagine. And then uh, we're going to have some baptisms here in a minute. So let's stand up and just worship the Lord today for all the great things he's done and who he is. God, thank you for being a our Father, Lord, our, the one who pursued after us, Lord, the one who, who found us where we are, where we were, found us even this morning, and brought us to this place, your house. And we're going to worship you today, and you're going to receive our prayers and our worship, Lord, and it's going to be a sweet aroma in your nose, Lord. I'm just thankful for that, and let us, let us do that in our hearts even now. Amen.
encourage one another with that this morning. Well, when you can find your seats, we're going to celebrate a life, okay? A brand new life, all right? This is Elijah Morgan. Just a few weeks ago, you got to watch his mom uh, declare to the world that Jesus Christ is her Lord. That's her standing right up there. That's Michelle. And yeah, I want to read to you what's happening here. This is from Acts chapter 2. Peter had preached a sermon that, that just declared who Jesus is and, and why he died on the cross. He died for our sins and that he fulfilled all these prophecies all through history that had been made about the God who would come to us to save us. And so as he finished his sermon, it says, in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to the Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Here's his reply. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for all your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Listen, God is at work right now. And we're seeing people baptized as a result of the work that God is doing. And we need to continue 
to pray because we want to see more and more people in our city come to Christ, right? All right. So you be praying, you be talking. Uh, you've already heard about the cards that you need to start giving to your friends and family and neighbors and people at work to invite them to come and worship Jesus, certainly, certainly on Easter, but all the time, all right? And so, Elijah, is Jesus Christ your Lord? Yes. Do you believe that God raised him from the dead after dying for your sins? Yes. Is there anything else you would like to tell these people? No, thank you. (laughs) All right. Well, I get to baptize you, my brother in Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Elijah and for so many others and for what you are doing in our lives. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Time of prayer. We're just so grateful for our Upward Basketball Ministry that, that we had these last um, couple months. Uh, yesterday was a huge celebration and, and time uh, with our teams, with the families. Um, they cooked, I don't know, 940 hamburgers yesterday. Uh, a lot of people were so appreciative. Talked to many parents. By the way, um, my first team didn't get enough points. You know, they didn't lose, but they just didn't get enough points. And my other team did well, so they won. Anyway, God is good. We had so much fun with these kids this year. Uh, just the impact that our church has had on, on kids in our community through this program has been amazing. But most of all... It's what Christ is doing in the lives of people. People are are hearing the word of God, and and let's pray for them that they'd respond. You know, they need to repent and find Jesus. They need need salvation that only Christ can can give. So let's pray for for our community and pray for those who were involved uh, in our program this year. You know, we did have 350 kids show up. And the gospel went out yesterday. I was just um, just amazed what God, God was doing. So let's pray and ask God to do the work. Father, we just commit um, these parents and these kids that came out to our basketball program this year to you. They've heard the gospel over and over now. They've heard scriptures. They've heard memory verses. And... God, the Holy Spirit needs to do the work in their hearts. Help us to be an encouragement to people. uh, Keep pointing them to the Savior, Jesus. Father, thank you for allowing us to do that. Thank you for uh, the Rodolphs that really organize that every year. Thank you for all those servants from our church that put in time and 
energy and love for these children. Father, you do the work. It, you have to build the church. God, you're doing an amazing job in us. Thank you for all these baptisms that we've had recently. Thank you for new folks that have come to Christ. Just continue to work in my life as well, Lord. I need you. Thank you for bringing us here together today. Father, be with Pastor Mike as he brings us the word. Just put in his mouth what you want us to hear. And thank you also for the offering that we're taking. Just may it be for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Easter's coming. It's good news. It's good news. We used to be hungry. We used to be thirsty. Now we've tasted the bread of life. So let's sing about it. One, two, three. Come out, brother. Come out, sister. That grave was just a bed. See the dawn drive out deepest darkness, guiding you to walk in faith each step. Come, you hungry, come, you thirsty, and taste the bread of life. Let it fill you, let it thrill you, His well. Sins filled, washed clean, sin enslaved men free. We've been justified, we're being sanctified till we're glorified. Oh, isn't it good news? Come heavy laden, come weary 
Okay, kids, third grade and under can go to super church. And good morning to everybody else. Man, uh, take your Bibles and turn over to Hebrews chapter 9 with me this morning. Like we said, we're only three weeks from Easter. And, you know, Easter is such an incredible time. It should be, if you're a follower of Christ, it's, it should be like the, the highlight of your year. But, but not because we shouldn't think about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection every day of the year. We should think about it every day. I mean, the fact that he died for us and rose again, man, that should change how we live our lives. It should change the way we speak. It should change the way we respond to other people. It should change the way we respond to adversity or to blessings. I mean, it should, Christ being in us, Christ being alive, Christ saving us is such a powerful thought. But man, during this time of preparation for the celebration of his resurrection, we should be taking some extra time maybe to think about what Christ has done for us. I hope you're doing that. I hope you're taking some time to read the accounts of him giving his life and what happened, how they arrested him, how they beat him, how they mocked him, spit on him, how they crucified him, how that impacted others. And then to read about the resurrection and how that impacted others, to think on those things, such a powerful thing to do in preparation for Easter. So please do that. And, and quite honestly, man, we should just celebrate the fact that that God really did intervene in this world for men and women who are lost, dying, without hope, without a relationship with God to make a way, right, for us to have a relationship with God, just to make a way. I hope that, I hope that you think about that because there's a lot of people that are still kind of doing the old thing, like I'm a good person, I hear that all the time. I'm a good person. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, most of the time when, I, when they tell me that, I'm like, well, I'm sure you are. And I really do mean I'm sure you are. In your mind, and maybe even compared to some other people, you are. But what are you like compared to God? And how does that, that attempt at goodness open the door for you to have a relationship with the holy God. Because that's the question, right? It's not the question of convincing yourself or somebody else that you're a good person. Um, man, I can't do it. Anyway, there we go. It's a crazy thing to consider God. Matter of fact, we may get to it before Easter, I don't know, but... In Hebrews chapter 10, it says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, he's going to have a standard, and he does have a standard that is pure and holy. And if we think we're going to work our way and attain to that holiness, we have deceived ourselves. And so we're going to talk this morning about a, the better approach to God we're going to continue in the vein of what we started last week. We started last week talking about the new and better covenant and really how the old covenant, the law of Moses, was designed to show us that we were sinners, but it was never designed to save us. That was the inadequacy of the old covenant. It was certainly clear 
that we were all sinners when we read the law of Moses, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't take very long to figure that out. Even go through the Ten Commandments and see if you've kept, you know, any of them, if not all of them, and find out that we're sinners, right? We talked about that last week and how Christ came to establish a new covenant, a new relationship with God. And I'm thankful that he has because Galatians 3.11 says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. In other words, the only thing that's going to make us righteous is faith in Christ Jesus. And so anyway, looking at that, we saw how Christ established a new covenant. Well, let's look now at chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll talk about the new approach to God. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for your word. And, and Lord, I need you to speak through me today. Lord, this is a, a sweet and yet deep passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would reveal the truths found in it. I pray, Lord, that we would see the glories of what you've done in Christ Jesus and that, Lord, we would put our faith in you and not in ourselves. I pray for those that don't know Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. Just as we have celebrated Elijah's baptism this morning and his mom Michelle's a couple of weeks ago we would celebrate so much to see others come to know you and to to find life in you and so Lord we pray that you would move that way Lord Jesus bless us as we hear your word apply it to our lives and we'll give you the glory in Jesus name amen 
So here we have this kind of continuance, if you will, right? We talked last week about how the writer of Hebrews has spent a great deal of time showing that Jesus is better. And he was talked about last week how the new covenant was better than the old covenant. And we're going to talk this week about this different approach to God. Uh, let me back up one verse and kind of catch us up as we make this transition. In chapter 8, verse 13, it says, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, that verse only makes sense if you realize that while he's writing this letter to these Hebrews that are thinking about turning away from Jesus because of the persecution they've been under, you have to realize that the temple still stands in Jerusalem and that the priests are still offering sacrifices and coming to God that way. Even though Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has risen from the dead, they're still going on because they have rejected Jesus Christ. And so he's saying to us here that, look, this new covenant has come and made the first one obsolete and it's ready to become, if you will, or ready to disappear. And so he's writing, telling them, look, why would you turn back? Why would you turn back to the old covenant, to the old way that wasn't sufficient in the first place? And then he goes on to explain this to us. And really in verses 1 through 10, he's going to show us how they used to do worship, right, under the old covenant, and how they used to approach God. And then in verses 11 through 14, he's going to show us the better approach. So, so let's look at that. Verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now even... The first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. So what he's saying is, as we transition between the old and the new, he's saying the old, the old system, if you will, had divine ordinances. It had a way to approach God. Of course it did. It was given by God to the Israelites to approach him than to be found acceptable to him at some levels. And so he's telling us it had these divine re re regulations. It had an earthly sanctuary where they approached God. And then he begins to describe this tabernacle. And he's talking about the old ta tabernacle that Moses established in the wilderness, right? That traveled with Israel the 40 years and it was around until actually Solomon built the temple. So he's talking about the old tabernacle and he says, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And so the first description he gives is of the holy place. Now, if you don't know much about the tabernacle itself, it was a rectangle, all right? And so it had specific measurements that God gave to them. And then in the middle of this rectangle was a curtain. And so the front half was in front of this curtain, and it was called the holy place. The back half behind the curtain was called the holy of holies. And so he's describing the first tabernacle, the first section, the first sanctuary of the, of the tabernacle. And he says, it's the holy place, and in this holy place is a lampstand, it would look more like a menorah, if you know what that looks like. It would have been big, and it would have been lit with all these different lamps on top of it, and it was to have light before the Lord continually, representing the light of God in this world. There would have been a, a table of showbread that was also before the curtain. It would have had 12 loaves of bread, six in, in one row, six in another row, and they stood for the people of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and that would have represented them before their God. 
It would have also had the golden altar of incense in it, even though in this description, he puts that in the second sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. Nowhere else in the Bible is it described as being inside in the Holy of Holies other than Hebrews chapter 9. And really what it was was twice a day in the morning and the evening, the priest would come and bring incense and offer that on this fire, on this golden altar. And then the incense would burn and go in even into the Holy of Holies before the Lord. And it represented the prayers of the people. And so most, most probably the reason he said it was inside the curtain was because the incense would go in there. So just in case you have a question, you can look at that if you want to. But the truth of the matter is, is that here's these regulations, right? And each day, the regular priest, not the high priest, but anybody else who was a priest. And a priest was anybody who was of the tribe of Levi and a descendant of Aaron. So if you were, you could be of the tribe of Levi and not a descendant of Aaron. And so then you were just a Levite who had other duties. But the priests, they would go into this sanctuary day after day morning and night, they would make sure the lamp was trimmed and make sure that they had plenty of oil in it so it would continue to shine. They would make sure that they would offer incense in the morning and the evening, and they would also change the show bread out once a week, make sure they put fresh bread. So that's the outer ta- tabernacle that he's talking about. Then in verse 3, he says, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tablet or tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so he also says, okay, so they're behind this curtain. The curtain was big. It was thick. It was beautiful, ornate, if you will, but it was this curtain that divided the tabernacle from the holy place from the holy of holies. And really behind that screen was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was basically a box, all right? And it was covered with gold. It had a couple rings on each side so they could carry it because no one could touch the covenant. If you did, you died. Matter of fact, no one could go into this place. If you did, you died. I mean, it was the presence of God. In this box was first the manna in a golden jar, manna that God gave to the people as they went to the wilderness to feed them. In there was Aaron's rod that had budded. Uh, The story was when people were challenging Moses and Aaron and their authority that God said to each leader of one of the other tribes of Israel, you all bring me a rod with the name of your tribe on it. We'll lay them before the Lord and I'll show you who's to be those who minister to me. Well, the next morning when they went to check these rods, Aaron's rod had not only budded with leaves, not only did it have flowers on it, but it had almonds on it, which is fantastic to me. The Lord's going to make sure you know this is my tribe, my men that I've called out. And so that's there too. And also the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on it were inside the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant is what they call the mercy seat. All right, it was just the cover of this Ark of the Covenant was covered with gold, and it was literally attached on both ends with these cherubim, angels, if you will, who had their heads bowed down, their wings stretching out toward one another, and their wings met in the middle. And right over that area, right over that mercy seat where God would show mercy to his people, 
was where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt with his people. It wasn't God himself. I mean, the tabernacle could not hold him. The temple in Jerusalem couldn't hold him. But his presence was going to dwell with with his people. And this was the place where the people were supposed to come. And they were supposed to approach God. They were supposed to worship him. They were supposed to pray. I mean, they were supposed to offer their sacrifices. This was the place. This was the old form of worship, if you will, and how they would approach the Lord. What's interesting is when we get down to to verse 5, the last part of it, it says, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And, And the truth of the matter is we could go into a lot more detail than I did. He didn't go into this much detail even as writing this book because his purpose is not for us to figure out what the old system was. It's to compare the old system and its inadequacies with the new system. So he goes on now in verse 6 to talk about how these priests would minister before the Lord. It says, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. And so basically, I've already talked about this. He says, so once the whole thing is set up, once these regulations are set up, once these pieces are set in place and represent these things before God, then the priests would come in every day and they would do those things I mentioned. They would trim the lamps. They would offer the incense in the morning and the evening. Once a week, they would change the table of showbread. But they did this every day, every day, over and over, over and over, over and over. And then he says in verse 7, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And so in verse 7, he describes the ministry of how you approach God in the holy of holies, right? Into God's Shekinah presence, his glory, if you will. And it's interesting because only one person gets to do that. At this time in the old system, only one person. And he's talking about the day of atonement here. I mean, he set up in God's ordinances this one day a year where the high priest alone could go into the presence of God. Then he wasn't allowed to go into the presence of God without the blood of a bull for himself and without the blood of a goat for the nation. And it's, it was an intense day. I mean, if you really want to read something awesome about how powerful God is and how, how awe-inspiring or, or even terrifying, if you will, it is to go into the presence of God. Go back and read Leviticus chapter 16 about the day of atonement. It was so serious that they would tie a rope to the robe of the high priest, or to the ankle of the high priest, because if he didn't come appropriately before God, he'd die. And you couldn't go in to retrieve him, or you'd die. And so they put a rope on his leg so that if he did die in the presence of God, they could pull him out without dying themselves. This was a no-joke kind of day to approach the living God. Matter of fact, the high priest had this ornate robe that he normally wore. It had all these things on it representing Israel. It had the Urim and Thummim that would be seeking God, and he would have a robe that said, holy to the Lord, and gold on top of it. But when he went before the Lord, he just put on linen, straight white linens and a white turban because... He needed to come as clean as he could before the Lord. And so it says that the priest would go in once a year, and he wasn't allowed to go in without blood. 
The blood was a sacrifice, right? The blood was the blood of a bull for himself. In other words, he had to take the life of this bull as a way for payment, if you will, for his sins. He'd sinned against God. And so he had to have something die for his sins and it had to be this bull according to God's regulations. And so he would take the bull, he would slit its throat, he would gather the blood into a cup, he would take the cup in with him, he'd take his finger and dip it in the blood and he would throw it on the mercy seat as a way to say, Lord, this animal died for my sins so I can be found acceptable to you. And then he would have to do that with the goat. He'd go back out, they would sacrifice the goat, slit the goat's throat. They would take the blood and gather it up again. He'd take it back inside. He'd do the same thing with his finger, sprinkle on the mercy seat for the sins of the people and say, Lord, this animal died for the sins of the nation of Israel so we can be forgiven in your presence. And if that weren't enough, it doesn't mention it in this particular passage, but you go and read about this in the Old Testament, he would come back out after this was done, and he would have another goat that they called a scapegoat. You ever heard scapegoat? Sure, it's to blame somebody else for what you did. Well, they have, this is where you get the term scapegoat. He would put his hands on this goat. He would confess his sins and the sins of his people. And then there would be a man that would take this goat way out into the middle of nowhere where it could never find its way back. And he'd let that go free, the goat go free. And it would be a way of saying, God has separated our sins that far from us that they're never going to come back on us, right? And so there was this whole procedure in order not to just forgive the people, but in order to actually purify the tabernacle, to actually make the tabernacle clean again so God's people could continue to approach God, right? This whole procedure of how difficult it was. And if you didn't follow the procedures again, I mean, God would strike you dead. Now you can read about Aaron's sons and Gosh, I'm trying to think of their names right now. Um, terrible to get old. But go back and read about the ones that offered strange fire. They didn't come according to God's statutes and ordinances. And fire came out from the Lord and killed them when they offered that. And so this is an interesting thing, the old covenant. You know, sometimes you and I, we, we actually act like God is kind of no big deal. Uh, don't we? We, t- we treat God very flippantly. I mean, honestly, I hear plenty of people say, man, I've been talking to the big guy up in the sky. Hmm, not so much. If you've actually been talking to God, he's no guy, and he owns the sky. He made the sky. He's the living God, and he's judge of all, and he's completely holy. These guys understood God's holiness because in order to come before him, they had to follow these regulations. They had to follow them perfectly. And if they did not, uh, they were found unacceptable to God. And being found unacceptable is not okay. So when we go on a little further, Let me read a little further before I talk more. Uh, In verse 8, it says, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed 
while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Now, the reason this guy's not really discussing all the details about this is because he wants us to hear this. He's saying that when you realize that most of this approaching God is done in the outer tabernacle, not in the presence of God, you need to realize that the way into God's presence has not been revealed yet. Now that's significant to me because I don't know about you, but I need God. I mean, since I've come to know Christ as my Lord and Savior, knowing his presence in my life, knowing the depth of his love for me, knowing his power, knowing his wisdom, knowing that I can come before him and actually pray and seek his face and trust him is life-changing to me. And it's something I need every single day of my life. But these guys couldn't do it. I mean, literally, day after day, after day, after day, after day, after day, these men would go into the holy place and they'd see the curtain. And they know that God's Shekinah glory was behind the curtain. But if they went into him, they'd die because they were not acceptable yet. The way into the presence of God, the approach that enables people to go into the presence of God hadn't come yet. Now, I can't ever say this stuff and talk about this stuff without ever thinking about the resurrection. Because man, when Christ was crucified, when he died, the veil, this veil, the Bible says, was torn in two from top to bottom. (laughs) It hadn't been revealed yet how to go into him. But when Christ died, it was split open. And when Christ rose, right, (laughs) it was thrown open to all who would believe in him. But the old covenant, the old way was, no, come do these things to approach me but, but no, you don't get to come into me. Now, the high priest, only once a year, and even that would have been a recognition that I don't have freedom to come to him. That's because the high priest couldn't go on a different day or he'd die doing that as well. So what does that have to do with you and I? I mean, what does it have to do with us when we think about this? Well, <clears throat> it's not that hard to understand Right, there's so many of us here who actually still are convinced that we have to do something and work towards something or keep some kind of law or keep some kind of rule if we're going to be acceptable to God. I hear it all the time. I see it in the judgment of people, even those who are Christians, that man, you don't wear this right or you don't sing this right or you don't read this right or whatever people design as the standard for holiness for themselves, they want to apply it to somebody else or they apply it to themselves to the place where they they never feel close to God and they never feel acceptable to God. And it really isn't about trusting Christ for our salvation. For many of us, it's still about this righteousness that we produce on our own. And I gotta tell you, when are you gonna get there? 
I mean, when are you going to get to the righteousness that you actually think you want to achieve on your own? I mean, so many people actually say to me, you know, listen, man, I believe that I'm a good person. Well, okay, but then I want them to explain that, and they'll say to me, well, I believe that my good works outweigh my bad works, and so I believe that when I stand in front of God, my good works are going to get me into heaven. Well, what about your bad works? Those are called sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And even these priests following the rules of God, if you will, couldn't get into his presence. How do you think you and I doing good works are going to go into the presence of the living God? Even these priests, the high priest, had to have a sacrifice for himself, and yet that sacrifice wasn't sufficient because he had to make the same sacrifice the next year when he went in. And so the Bible's telling us, look, this old system isn't good enough. Matter of fact, it goes on further in verse 9. It says, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Now, that's important, that word conscience, right? That's the inside. That's what we know of ourselves on the inside. These things that, that they had set up was to show that you could do some things on the outside. You could offer a sacrifice on the outside, but you still knew you were sinful. Then you could do all the washings that they prescribed. You could keep all the, the rules of the Old Testament, but you knew in your heart that you still continued to sin and that you still needed another sacrifice for your sin. It did not make the person perfect or righteous or acceptable to God in their conscience. And isn't that true of us today? I mean, if you had known me 36 years ago, 37 years ago, before Christ radically changed my life, you would know today that I'm not that same guy. I mean, I don't cuss like a sailor. I don't go places I used to go. I don't have the heart that I used to have. I mean, you could look at me and go outwardly, right? That guy's different. But listen, there's a lot of people that are working to make themselves better men and better women. They don't have to have Christ to make themselves better men or better women. They can do some things to, to shape themselves up a little bit so they look better to themselves and everybody else. But if you don't think my heart doesn't tell me that I'm a sinner still today, if you think my conscience doesn't tell me, man, why do you have that attitude or why did you say that word or why didn't you do that thing or why did you do that thing? If you think that I can get away with showing you outwardly that I'm a better man, you'd be mistaken and you know what I'm talking about. Man, I, I don't know if I should have used this, this illustration in the first service, but I'll do it again. I grew up in a farming community, you know, and the highlight of the 4-H fair was to hang out in the hog barn and to hang out in the cattle barn. If you want to know the truth about it as a teenager, that's where the good-looking girls were. So that's what you did. You went to go help them clean up their hogs and get them ready to show and clean up their cattle and brush it out and clean out its tail. And man, we would paint the hooves black or sometimes if it was a, it was a black and white hog, I a Hampshire hog, we'd paint up some of the black and white to make it look better. I mean, you're trying to show this thing and win prizes. And so here you are, man, you're getting these things all cleaned up. And there was nothing worse than to clean up, especially a hog. 
Because they're hogs, they're pigs, they like the dirt. And you get that thing all cleaned up and you turn your back on him and the first thing he'd do is go lay down and roll in the mud. You'd have to clean him all up again. I mean, truth be known is that you can clean up the outside of yourself, but you're like that pig. You're still dirty on the inside. And that's who you are, right? So he says all of these things, man, you, you can't get made perfect in your conscience by offering all these sacrifices because your sin has not been dealt with completely yet. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. And really he's saying that all of the law was given to deal with the outwardly issues, which in a way is good, but it's not enough. And he says, and they were only given until a time of reformation, until something better came, until something more perfect came, until the one came who could deal with the issue of the heart. Remember we read last week about the new covenant and how God would write his hearts on their mind, or his laws on their mind and on their heart, how he would be their God and how they would be his people and how he would deal mercifully with their transgressions and remember their sins no more. Do you remember? That's what he's talking about, right? The new covenant, the new way to approach God. And so then he says here in verse 11, but when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things to come. And I, I love this. I love this understanding that he's used now, he talked in chapter seven, which we didn't go over, about Jesus becoming the great high priest. And let me read this reminder to you because it's important in this passage. In chapter seven, verses 23 through 25, it says, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And he reminds us here that Christ appeared as the high priest, as the one who would intercede between God and man on behalf of man in God's favor, right? He's the one that's going to stand now, not coming into this temporary tabernacle, not coming into this tabernacle made with hands, not coming into this tabernacle that, that was insufficient to actually save and forgive and renew a man and make him right with God. Now he says he's, come, he's appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, and he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. In other words, what he's saying is, man, these high priests would go in once a year, but Jesus has gone into the heavenly tabernacle. He's gone into the presence of the living God. He's actually had the authority, the right, the ability to go before the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of all things, and make a sacrifice worthy of saving us. I mean, he is no joke better then the priests and the high priests that came before him, they couldn't even go through the curtain except one of them once a year. And Jesus has gone in before the Father 
in the tabernacle in heaven. And I don't know exactly what that looks like because quite honestly, I believe in the at, in the book of Revelation, the Bible says that God tabernacles among us and we come into his presence. So I don't know if he's just not the tabernacle himself, right? Whatever it means is Christ has come into his presence, which is astounding because no one had ever been worthy of that, not even close before Jesus. And then he says, and I love this, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Uh, I mean, there's always some things that just strike me so deeply. Um, and, you know, and even, even just the blood of goats and calves. You know, sacrifice was a humbling thing. You know, if you've ever hunted, and I like to hunt, but if you've ever actually killed something, it's not like you just jump up and down like that animal was insignificant. You took a life. Now, you took the life so you can feed your family. That's, that's fair. I'm not saying you shouldn't hunt. I like to hunt. I'm going to hunt again. I mean, sometimes you go, wow, that's a living being. That's a living animal that's now dead because you killed it. And you should pause. I mean, I actually pray after I shoot something. And I say, thank you, Lord. For this animal, I thank you for your grace that you provide for me, but but I'm not taking it lightly. You took this life. That's not the way that works for anybody that I think is worth their salt who hunts. But think about now when you bring a sacrifice, you got a bull, you got this animal, and you've got to slit its throat. And it's gonna be bloody. And it's going to be hard because you're taking the life of this animal because you sinned. It's paying the price for your sin. Same with a goat. This is an animal. You're slitting its throat because you sinned. But when you, when you think about Jesus, he offered himself He laid down his life. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down. I mean, this sacrifice of Christ, it was bloody too. He'd been beaten almost without recognition. He had this crown of thorn on his head that was streaming down blood from his head. If you've ever had a bad cut on your head, you know how much it bleeds. Then they pounded nails into his hands and nails into his feet. I mean, there was just blood everywhere. But that sacrifice was because of my sin. It was because of our sins. And so he enters into the holy place with his own blood. And what's so crazy about this picture of sacrifice is that If you were in the old system and you sinned, you'd sacrifice a goat or a lamb or a bull as a sin offering or a turtle dove or a pigeon if you were poor. But if you sinned again, you had to offer another one. had to offer another sacrifice because the first one wasn't enough. It was enough to just pay for the one sacrifice. But listen to what it says about Jesus. He says he entered 
the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In other words, he came with his, his own blood, his life, his sacrifice of himself, and his life was so valuable. I mean, he was the living God who took the form of a man, right? He was the living God who laid down his life. And so his life was so valuable that he laid it down once for all. Once for all. His sacrifice was so valuable that they never had to make another sacrifice. Then he made it before the Father who is in heaven, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You want good news? I mean, here's good news. There isn't any better news that God would make eternal redemption for us through the most valuable sacrifice he had to offer, which was his son, And that redemption means he bought us back. He bought us back from the penalty of sin. He bought us back from the punishment of sin. He bought us back from the wrath of God in sin. He bought us back because he loves us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know whether you're loved or not? Look at the cross. Stop looking at yourself as the answer to your issues and start looking to Jesus Christ as going, you love me that much? Man, all I want to do then is to worship you and all I want to do then is to shout your name and all I want to do then is to give you glory because you deserve it. That's what happens when we're saved. Man, anything less that happens after salvation, you should ask yourself, have I truly been saved? Because salvation isn't then about somehow growing in this you know, Bible knowledge to where you're smarter than everybody else. I just recently talked with somebody, hadn't been saved very long, but they're asking me questions about doctrine, which is okay sometimes, but they're really trying to prove somebody else wrong as they're doing it. I'm like, man, if you just got saved, why aren't you just shouting and thanking God for your salvation and calm down before you want to argue with somebody? I mean, it's just ridiculous to me. How about we praise God and leave the argument somewhere else? We can have some time to discuss truth in the Word of God, and we should. But man, there ought to be some rejoicing. Amen? Well, let's finish up. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? Now, (laughs) here's again the last comparison for the day for us. He says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes uh, of a heifer sprinkling clean cause these people to be undefiled, then how much more the blood of Christ, right? And so again, we've talked about blood. The ashes of the heifer, I'll just use that briefly. Uh, In Israel's history, if you go back and look at it, they would take a red heifer, had to be specific red heifer, and they would actually sacrifice this heifer and they would burn her, all of her, on this fire. And then they would take up the ashes from this heifer. And if you touched a dead body or touched a dead animal, you'd be ceremonially unclean. And for you to be clean again, you'd have to take some of those ashes, put it in a container, put some water in the container. And then like on the third day, you'd sprinkle somebody clean. On the seventh day, you'd sprinkle them clean with these ashes and they could go back into the camp. And so basically, sorry, that's a short version of that. But the truth of the matter is, is that whether it was through your sin or whether you became, you became defiled through touching a dead body or whatever else, you had to be clean. 
But those things, the sacrifices and the ashes of the red heifer, could only clean the flesh. They could not clean the conscience. But it says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That problem with the conscience we talked about earlier is now resolved because the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his life on behalf of ours and our sin not only deals with the outside defilement, but it deals with the heart. That's why Ezekiel says, I'll take the heart of stone from them and I'll replace it with the heart of flesh. That was the promise that Ezekiel made to those who were struggling with God at that time. And so that's what's happened to us, right? We've become new. Our conscience is clean. I mean, quite honestly, I've said this so many times, man, it's not inappropriate to recognize that you're a sinner. It's not. It's not inappropriate to say to the Lord, I've fallen short. I've sinned against you. I've hurt somebody else. It's not inappropriate to say that, but you only say that if you're actually going to come to him and go, Lord, the only hope from my heart then again and my mind and my life is your blood, your sacrifice on my behalf. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. And, Lord, because of that, I'm going to approach you again. Right? Hebrews says, let us draw near boldly to the Lord. Let us come boldly before the Lord that we might find mercy and grace in time of need. Do you know what that means? The way that we approach Christ is not flippantly, it's not insignificant. The way we approach Christ is boldly. We come and say, Lord, if it weren't for Jesus Christ, we could not approach you. We would still be on the outside of that curtain and there would be no way in, but because of Christ and his sacrifice, we now come boldly knowing that we'll find mercy and grace in our need. It's a fantastic truth that the Bible presents to us. And I love what it says. It says, not only cleanse your conscience from dead works. In other words, all the works that you're doing never make you acceptable to God. They're just dead works. And so God's going to wash your conscience clean because you know you're a sinner. And then he says to serve the living God. Man, when we come to Jesus... Man, Jesus begins to flow out of us. One of the strangest things to me is still to talk to people that claim to know Jesus, and yet they're not doing a thing for him or in his name. They don't talk about him. They don't want to serve. They don't want to be a part of the body of Christ. They don't want to walk with anybody else. I mean, are you kidding me? You're talking about the greatest thing that ever happened to any man or woman or boy or girl on this earth, and it doesn't change us to serve him? Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in chapter 6, and man, he said, woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and God sent an angel to touch his lips and make him clean, and when God said, who shall go for me and whom shall I send, Isaiah went, woo, choose me. 
There's no woo in there. But I'm pretty sure he did it. Because why wouldn't you? I mean, why wouldn't you? Folks, when we begin to talk about Christ's death and his resurrection, we're coming to that celebration. But are you celebrating him today? Are you thankful for what he's done for you today? Do you marvel at this glorious gift of love and sacrifice that he gave to us through his sacrifice on the cross? I mean, are you then going, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to be excited about you. No, you may not have the passion that sometimes come out of me. Fair enough. But you have Christ And he's way more powerful than any passion I can conjure up, right? He's way more powerful to change our lives. And we ought to be men and women living for him if he's in us. Because if we're not, we're suppressing him. We're suppressing him. We're pressing him down so that we can do what we want. Man, it's about time. It's about time to let him out, right? Man, our dead works have been cleansed. If you think you're the great one because of what you do, you're ridiculous. The great one is Jesus Christ. And so in him, then we're now free to live for God. Let's do it. Amen? So really, the question is, where are you with him? The old system, you could not approach God. If you don't have Christ Jesus in your life today, you're still shielded from God by that veil. There's no getting to God apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. I'm the way to approach God. If you've never trusted Jesus, why not trust him today? Say, Lord Jesus, I need you to forgive me. I want to have a relationship with God. I'm coming in your name. I'm coming in what you did for me. And believer, and how about renew? How about renew? How about look at Jesus again? How about look at the power of his sacrifice and the depth of his love and go, yeah, Lord, I love you, and I want to live for you. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I do want to live for you. I do every day. I want to live for you every day. And Lord, I fall short, and I'm sorry, but I still marvel at what you have done for me and what you have done for us. There's nothing on earth better than Jesus. There's no one who loves us more than you do, Lord God. And I pray for those who are here and have never trusted Jesus that even today they would be saved and they would come near to the living God through the sacrifice of Christ and experience your goodness and your love and your grace and your mercy, your strength, your wisdom and all that you have for us. And for those of us, Lord, that know you already, Lord, forgive us when we suppress you. Let us, Lord God, because of Christ, live for you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.
Lord Jesus, our lives are yours. You're worthy of our commitment to you. You're worthy of our faith in you. You're worthy, Lord God, of just our service. Let it flow from us. I'm so grateful for Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and through his resurrection that we could be made clean inside and out. That we don't have to feel guilty when we come and confess our sins because you're willing to forgive us through Christ. Thankful for that. May you give us rest in that and joy and peace in that. And I continue to pray for those who don't know you, that, Lord, you'd draw them, that you'd bless them, and that they would come to know the incredible love that you've poured out for them. Bless us as we leave this place, Lord God, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.